dad, by the way. <laughs> I, I am Pastor John. For those of you that don't uh, don't know me, we have several visitors this morning. We are so glad that you're here. I was going around meeting all the visitors, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm like trying to remember names. I'm like, I get up to like six, and I'm like, okay, this, this is not going to work. I am not going to remember all these names. But man, we are, I was sharing with one of the younger families that was here just how much of a blessing it is to have all the visitors, and you guys are an encouragement to our hearts already, and so thank you so much for being here, and I pray that it's already been a blessing to you. I'm going to talk for a minute just to give the other uh, folks a chance to get back over here. Um, Jared mentioned about just thanking the church for the opportunity to um, make the camp available to the kids, and and um, what he means is, and just kind of to, to expound on that is that the kids didn't have to pay anything to go to camp. Um, the, the entire amount of their fees was paid by people making donations into the, into the youth group. It was made by them going out and doing some different service jobs at the church to, to earn money um, for the for camp. But um, it was a, you guys made it possible for them to go without having the, um, the responsibility or the weight of having to pay the, pay the funds. And that's not only a blessing to the teenagers, but it's a blessing to the parents as well who are able to send their kids based upon that. And, and that we only sent, I think we sent four teenagers this year and um, two, two counselors. But, but as Jared mentioned, our goal is in the next, in years to come, to be able to send many more. And um, sometimes parents won't even be able to afford to send their kids. And so if we can start building on this concept of really funding the youth group um, through the church body, and down the road when we have kids coming in here that can't afford to go to camp, they'll go to camp anyway, right? And it'll be because of you guys. And so thank you so much, as Jared said, thank you so much for your um, uh, participation in sending your kids to camp. And you don't really know uh, the impact that you that they that God has in their life at that week of camp. And, and Jared was able to have, I think, four other boys from other, he had a, a foster boy in his, in, his, in his cabin with him, a boy in the foster care. He had a couple of other boys that have difficult situations and backgrounds. And he just the, the impact that's able to be had in those situations is something that really can never be measured. And it's something that will be um, hopefully in these kids' lives forever. So I just say all that, first of all, to spend some time so everybody can get back in here, but, but more so just to thank you guys for your participation in that and then encourage you, as the year goes by, remember that the, uh, there's a youth fund and um, it, can be, it can be a part of your giving if you'd like it to be and um, it can be a blessing to them and they're able to do what they're able to do based upon that. So thank you so much for that. I want to invite you at this time to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. I mentioned this last week, and I'll share it with it again. Share it again with you. Um, this is a this is a, a fast paced. Uh, we're we're going to work through the book of 1 Corinthians in a, in a fast pace. And normally, we try to take little bite size um, nuggets 
maybe two or three verses or five verses or six verses. But this, is, this, um, this series is built around a project that I'm doing for my um, doctoral program at the Master's Seminary that um, requires me to preach 10 sermons out of the book of, out of 1 Corinthians 15 by the end of November of this year. And so my, my pursuit is in, sep- in September, in October and November to actually press into those 10 sermons on the resurrection in the 15th chapter, but my heart was I wanted to give us a picture of what was going on in Corinth. I felt like it's valuable to grasp the um, theme of Corinthians before we get to the to what I would say would be the climax of Corinthians. I think that Corinthians' climax is in the resurrection, and I think 1 Corinthians 15 is really like a, a pressing point that the whole book is pushing towards. And when you get there, if you, if, you, if you take some time to read through the book, just mark all of the times that eternity is mentioned or some idea of eternity is mentioned. And what you'll see is it's a theme. It's not just a chapter, but it's really a theme of the whole book. And my heart's desire is, um, the, the title of my, of my project is um, how, how a Proper View of the Resurrection Can Impact Grace Bible Church of Hollister. My heart is, is that we would get a perspective of life that is eternal, that it is able to rise above the um, temporary, able to rise above the things that we can see, touch, and feel, and able to embrace a um, system of belief that is built around the things that we can't see, touch, and feel, an eternal perspective on life. And to live today as if we have truly embraced an eternal view of things. And so that's my goal. And uh, so you can kind of know in advance where I'm pressing and where I'm going to push for throughout this study. And um, each week it'll be a large portion. Probably I'll try to deal with an entire chapter. And this week it's chapter one. And we we talked on nine verses last week the first nine, and I'm going to give you a little bit of review of that, and then we're going to get into verses 20 down to verse 31 and unfold that a little bit as well. The Apostle Paul's first letter to Corinth is is a call to the church. It is truly a challenge to the church, and ultimately it's a challenge for the church to change. Um, There are things that are taking place in the church at Corinth. This letter is written approximately three years after the church has been established. So it's a new church. It's a baby church. It's a church that when it was initially formed was a very gifted church. Matter of fact, uh, three chapters, chapter 12 through 14, uh, Corinthians, it talks about Corinthians and their spiritual gifts. And the Lord had not only saved them, but he had really gifted them. He had given them some spiritual things just right off the bat that they, they, they were um, really exhibiting the Holy Spirit. But as you would see in those three chapters, we, we'll get to them later, but they started to use them selfishly. Instead of using them with an eternal perspective, they started using them with a temporary perspective, and all of a sudden now you have people uh, doing their spiritual gifts and saying, hey, look at me. Look at what I did and look at what I accomplished. Totally off base for somebody who's living for Christ but yet that's what the Corinthian church did. 
So what the, what the challenge is, is for the Corinthian church to change and to change in such a way as to um, match up their, and I just wrote down four thoughts here, and you can write them down. This comes from verse 1 through 9, and also just a theme of the book. The, the letter to Corinth is a call to match your progress with your position. It's a call to match your progress with your position. In other words, there are certain things that are true about you, right? We agree with that. There are certain things that are true about me. As a follower of Jesus, the Bible says that I am sanctified. The Bible says that I am, I am justified. The Bible says that I am perfectly righteous. These are realities. God has, through Christ, God has performed these miracles to make my position, I am positionally these things positionally are true about me. If I were to be, if you were to ask me how God views me, I would say that God views me perfectly righteous. There's nothing, there's nothing evil about me in God's eyes because he views me in Christ. And he views Christ in me, so therefore I am perfectly righteous in God's eyes based upon what Jesus has done. However, this letter is to get you to match your progress to your position. A lot of people know these things are realities, but they're not moving in that direction. It's like you can't say all of these things are true about me, but I'm going to live the opposite of them. The issue is all of these things are true about me, and I'm going to live in tune with them. So the, the theme of the book is to match the Corinthians' progress with their position. It's to match their, des their direction with their destination. It's to match what is temporary to what is eternal. And it is to match the process with the proclamation. In other words, what they proclaimed about themselves, now what the Apostle Paul is calling them to, is make sure what you claim about yourself is being lived out. Listen, folks, it's, it's a foolish thing to think that my destination is over here, but I'm going to walk that way and reach the destination that's over here. True? So Corinth is like you're, you're claiming to be Christians. You're claiming to be followers of Jesus. You're claiming that your destination is over here. I'm going to reach heaven. I'm going to reach this, um, this uh, glory in Christ. I'm going to reach these things, but then, but then you're moving this direction. That's the, call of, that's the call to the Corinthian people. And the Apostle Paul is, is trying to get them to see that, you're, that, you're, that your process is not matching your proclamation. Your destination is not matching your direction. Your life does not match what you proclaim. And the Apostle Paul is clear, even in chapter number 6, that there are people who proclaim to be followers of Jesus who aren't, and that's a problem. So he's pressing them to be what you say about yourself, let it be true about you. And he uses this terminology in chapter number 1, verse 1 through 9. He says, I'm just going to read it to you. He says in verse number 2, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, and they are called to be saints. In other words, those who are sanctified should be saintly. Right? Those who are positionally, and this word is written in the perfect tense, its meaning is that it happened in the past. It's already done. Everything necessary for your sanctification, for you to be perfect in the eyes of God, was completed by Jesus Christ. Amen? 
He accomplished it, everything. But then he says, but you are called to be saints. You're not just sanctified and left alone. You're sanctified and then you are called to be saintly or you're called to move in the direction of sainthood. It just means to be living out what God has put in. It says it later in the, uh, down in verses 4 through 9, it says those who are graced and those who are confirmed should not be lacking in spiritual things. In other words, if God has put it in you, we shouldn't lack the manifestation of it. We shouldn't be lacking in love, right? Shouldn't be lacking in love, should we? Christians shouldn't be lacking in love. Why? Because we have the greatest exhibition of love in Christ, in us. We shouldn't be lacking in joy. We shouldn't be lacking in peace. We shouldn't be lacking in service to others. We shouldn't be lacking in sacrifice. We shouldn't lack in any of these things. Why? Because Christ has done these things in us. And therefore, if it's true about us, Positionally, it should be true about us directionally. Or maybe another word of that, a better way of saying that is, if it's true about us positionally, it ought to be true about us practically. I would say this to you. We live in a generation of people who claim, the Bible says that, you, that, you, that you, um, you're close to me with your words, but your heart is far from me, right? I, I, would, I would not, I don't think, be too too far off to say that that describes our generation and that describes our culture. We're close to, we know the words to say, we know what God expects of us and we know how to speak it really good, right? We know how to say it in the right moments, but the issue is, is does our, does our life really present that? Are we truly living it out? Also in verse 1 through 9, he gives them some stabilizing truths to help comfort them in the journey. We're not going to relook at the, at the verses, but there's just three of them. Number one, we are not alone. The Apostle Paul and other believers, it talks about all believers, are, are on this journey with us. No one, is lo- no one is alone in the Christian life. I said this last week, and I'll say it again. The Christian life is not meant to be lived by itself. You're not meant to live the Christian life alone. Matter of fact, if you look at it, the Christian life is an is an exempt is a is a is an is a picture of the Trinity, and the Trinity is not one, it is three living in one. It is it is it is the church is not to be dis, a display of oneness uh, in in regards to individuality, it's a display of, of a multitude of people living as, as one person. Matter of fact, the, the very idea of the church representing the Trinity is that it is multiple people living as one. That's what um, 1 Corinthians 12 and the spiritual gifts, it literally says that thing, that the body is made up of many members, but it is how many bodies? It's one body made up of many members. Again, it's a picture of the Trinity. The Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but they are how many gods? One God. They function as one perfectly. Well, that's why the church is called to function in that way. So know this. In the the Christian life, on this um, journey that we're on of faith, we're not alone. We have leaders 
and we have other believers to join us on the journey. It also, he also tells us that we are secure. He uses terms like sanctified, graced, enriched, and confirmed. All of these are written in the past tends to say to us that it's all, all, it's all, it's all completed. There's nothing more to be completed in the Christian life. Jesus completed it all. If you're trying to, in your Christian life, if you're trying to fill up something that Jesus was lacking in, you've missed the whole point of the Christian life. You're not doing things that Jesus lacked in. You're building off the fact that Jesus lacked in nothing. It's working from success, not working towards success. It's working from completion, not working towards completion. It's working from victory, not working towards victory. We are secure. We have been sanctified. We have been graced. We have been saved. We have been enriched. We have been confirmed. We have been filled with the Spirit. All of these things are past realities for a Christian. Let me suggest to you that many false religions today teach you that you have to do these things in order to be blessed and sanctified and saved. That's not true. These are all found in Christ. So we are secure in Christ. And then the latter part of verse number nine is simply this, that we are guaranteed. We are sustained, guiltless. We are following the one who is faithful. All of these things are true because we are in Christ. We have a guarantee that we will make it to the destination not based upon our own faithfulness, not based upon our own righteousness or our own goodness. Listen, if you're basing your, your, your ability to reach the destination of, of Christ's likeness or the destination of heaven based upon the things that you accomplish and you do, you will be an utter failure. There'll be no one accepted in the presence of God. At the same time, if you're trusting in Christ, anyone is accepted in the presence of God. Because your acceptance in the presence of God, you may be sitting here this morning thinking, man, I could never get in the presence of God for what the things that I have done. No, listen, if you will place your faith in Christ, you will be accepted into the presence of God on the basis of what Christ has done for you. That's what salvation is. Salvation is not you earning God's favor. Salvation is you receiving God's favor because somebody else earned it for you. It's a beautiful, amazing thing. I will say this to you, if you believe yourself unworthy to enter into the presence of God, you're more likely to get there than the person who believes themselves worthy to enter the presence of God. Jesus says about the, he says about the whores and the drunkards, he says, they will make it into my kingdom before the self-righteous will. Why? Because it's built around Christ. It's all about Christ. And we are guaranteed, we are secure, we are not alone in this journey. We don't have to accomplish things to get there. We accomplish things because we are there. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 says it this way, He who calls you is faithful. He will surely accomplish it. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely accomplish it. Now that brings us to our text this morning. We're going to look at chapter 10 to chapter or verse 10 to verse 31. This deals with the first the first challenge that um, Paul is going to address in regards to the church. A few things about this first 
challenge or this first call to change is that this is the most significant call to change in the entire book. We're going to read about a lot of things in the book of Corinthians that the Apostle Paul says, stop doing. Stop doing it. Stop doing it. But he focuses on this one for four chapters. Not just one chapter, but four chapters he focuses on this issue in the church. And he's telling them, stop it. The old, the old counseling video, if you've ever seen it, with was it Bob Newhart? Anybody ever watched the Bob Newhart show? Okay, I got some, some head shakes in here. You're all, you're all showing your age, right? The young people are like, what is he talking about up there? But in one of them, he just he's giving counsel to, I think it's a young lady, and he just tells her, stop it. And he just says it over and over again. Maybe you've seen it. But that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He's going to build a foundation for the church to stop doing certain things that don't... What he's saying is, is, is what you're doing doesn't match up with what you're proclaiming. It's a sad state when the church proclaims something but doesn't live it. It's a sad state of the church. What we call people that do that, what, this, what the Bible calls people that do that is it calls them hypocrites. And the Bible is actually full of people like that who proclaim something with their mouth but don't live it with their life. And it's a problem. It's a problem. And what it does is it pushes people away from the church instead of bringing them into the church. It makes people, it makes people dislike God's people and God's kingdom and God's church more than it makes them like it. People who claim the name of Christ today, folks, who don't live what they claim, are doing a great disservice to the body of Christ. And I will say to you that that is... That is a statement that, can, that is a challenge to every one of us sitting here in this building today. I'm not preaching to the people outside there. We're preaching to us. We need to evaluate whether or not we're living what we're proclaiming. We need to think about this. So, so the first thing that the Apostle Paul deals with is, is the first conflict that he deals with is division. So let's read it together. And then we'll look at a few truths from it. The Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, that there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or... I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did not baptize also, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I, did, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, but lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of cross, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? 
For since in the wisdom of, of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly or foolishness to Gentiles or Greeks. But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles or Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Just, just stop for a moment and just notice the things that God chooses. I mean, this isn't going to be on the front page of your top 50 people in America that are going to get chosen to do anything. What he's saying is, is God doesn't choose like man chooses. God doesn't think like man thinks. God doesn't discern like man discerns. He thinks differently. He chooses differently. He acts differently. He discerns differently. And what the Apostle Paul is telling to the church at Corinth is you need to discern the same thing. Division in the church is often a result of people not discerning the way God discerns. They don't have an eternal perspective. They don't have a faith-filled perspective. They don't have a positive perspective. They just simply are judgmental and condemning. That's not fitting with what the Lord says. He says, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. He goes so far as to say, not only do I choose like the least, but even if they're not there, I choose them. It's like the nobodies that nobody knows. Those are the ones. Listen to me. This is so, this is so antithetical to the culture that we live in today. And it's not just antithetical to the culture we live in today. It's antithetical to how we function in our churches. We look for elevation. We look for ex exalted people, people who are important and significant. I, I pray to God that we just be simple. I pray to God that we just serve him with our hearts and our minds and our strength in ultimate simplicity without any pride at all. Because listen to me, folks, it's not us doing it anyway. Can you imagine going through life and taking credit for what somebody else did all the time and thinking that you were great? And getting to heaven one day and God saying, hey, you really didn't do anything. I did it all through you. Thanks for stealing my credit. Right? God isn't choosing significant people. God is choosing insignificant people. And he's doing great things with them so that he can then say, look at this. Look at this. Not look at what they are. Look at what I've done in them. And that's what it's about. He goes on to say, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Note, note that, verse 30. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of whom? Because of you? Because of your talent and ability? Because of your eloquence and your wisdom? No, because of him, you are in Christ. Because of Jesus, you are saved. Because of God, you are saved. Not because of you, but because of him. It is, it is his work that has chosen to bring you into the family of God. You were resisting it with all of your heart. The Bible calls you, it, the Bible says that you were enemies of God before you were saved. God graciously brought you into the family. It had nothing to do with your will, everything to do with his will. That's what, first, that's what John 1 verse 11 and 12 says, that we were birthed by his will, not by our own will. And then it says this, not only are we in the family because of God, but and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us. Notice that it doesn't say he gave to us, but he became for us. Not only has Christ graciously brought us into his family, but he has now granted to us his spirit. And within his spirit are all things necessary for life and godliness. He became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boast, boast in the... It doesn't say boast in his abilities, boast in how great a preacher he is, boast in how great a singer he is, boast in how great this... No, it has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with him. So that brings us to our walk through this text quickly. Please join me in thinking as we walk through. The first thing is we see the conflict. The conflict is simply strife in the church. The strife in the church was reported to the Apostle Paul. He obviously had people within the church. He cared much about the church, and he was receiving reports from people in the church. In this case, it was Chloe. She sent him a message, a letter, whatever might be the case, and said, there's division in the church, Paul. There's division, there's strife, there's turmoil in the church, and it's something that needs to be dealt with. This, the uh, division that's in the church, for, for just the sake of understanding it, it comes from the Greek word uh, schismata, which means schism. It's a split or a gap or a separation. And if you wanted a picture of it, you could, you could imagine a garment that begins to unravel. Um, you might have a string on the garment that is uh, sweaters. I think back in the day when people wore sweaters, they would, you know, a, a piece would get snagged, right? And you would say, you know, don't just keep on pulling that string because sooner or later you'll have a bunch, you'll have a pile of thread, but you'll have no sweater anymore, right? So when you think about that, this idea of schism is that there is an unraveling of something. Uh, something is unraveling. It's uh, splitting apart. Not only that, but a military line, if you think of a military uh, uh, advancement, that military line, there's a, there's a gap in it. Uh, maybe a, a portion of it gets um, wounded or maybe even killed, and now there's a gap in the line, and so therefore the advancement is no longer possible. And then the third illustration that I thought of for this is just an, an athlete, a football player who that offensive line sets up and there's something that's called a QB sack if you're a football fan. And you know what happens when the QB gets sacked. It's not a good thing for the offensive line because it means that there was a schism in the line, right? And the defensive line decided to expose that schism. And they tackled the quarterback and the quarterback wasn't very happy with it. And so what he's talking about here that's happening in the church 
the church is being weakened. This is the idea of it. The church is being weakened by division. There's a schism, a, a breaking apart, an unraveling that's taking place in the church body that is weakening the church. And let me ask you guys this question this morning. Is Satan all about unraveling the church or is the Lord about unraveling the church? Is Satan behind the church unraveling or is God behind the church unraveling? What is it? Satan is. It's not the Lord that wants to become weak in his advancements. It's not the Lord that wants to have a, a weakened defense system around the gospel. He wants to have a strong defense system. So when we see this schism taking place, this division, this unraveling, this split or gap or separation, we know that the devil is doing what he can do to unravel the church. Why? Because the church is at its weakest point when it's unraveling. Why does, the, why does the Apostle Paul make such a big deal out of this to deal with it for four chapters? Because what he knows is, is, the, church is the church is ineffective if it's not unified. It has no power. It has no impact. It's like one of the offensive linemen saying, you know, I'm not going to sit this play out. I'm just not going to be involved. And that quarterback's going to get demolished. But you know something that's interesting is, as we think about it from that analogy, it's not the quarterback getting demolished, is it? When the church says, I'm going to sit, when the offensive lineman in the church says, I'm going to sit this play out, who gets demolished? Tell me. Jesus gets demolished. The, the team gets demolished. But you know what? Jesus is the one that's the head of that. This is all about Jesus. We miss that. We lose sight of that. We, we take division in the church lightly because we, real, we, 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 have, we, have, we have determined in our mind that it's not significant. It doesn't really matter. Yes, it does matter. It, it matters to more than just the fact that the church can't get along. It matters to the fact that Christ is the quarterback. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12, 25, speaking about the spiritual gifts, that God gives everybody a spiritual gift so that they might be united by those spiritual gifts. And he says this, so that, so that, this is the why we have spiritual gifts, so that there is no schisms in the body, but that every member may have the same care one of another. Okay, here's the, here's the problem in the church at Corinth. It's sectarianism. Sectarianism is simply following a leader, linking themselves to a certain leader, and by linking themselves to that leader, they become a follower of that leader. Likely in Corinth, they had heard Paul preach, they had heard Apollos preach, they had heard uh, Peter preach, another name for Cephas, and they had heard Christ preached. Imagine a church today who had John MacArthur, John Piper, and R.C. Sproul all as associate pastors. Okay, we would say, whoa, what an amazing church. But you know the likelihood of that church succeeding would be small because people would go to that church and say, I'm of John MacArthur. Well, I'm of John Piper, and I'm of R.C. Sproul. And what you would have is you would have an unraveling church. That's what he's dealing with. This idea of, I, have, I follow this for this reason, this person, I like their this or that. And that's why I follow them. The church in this idea of sectarianism is comparing, the, is comparing the leadership of the church based upon their abilities or their accomplishments. 
There's something physical about Paul, Apollos, Peter, and Jesus that caused the people in the church to connect to them and then divide because they weren't following the other men. I want you to remember that. Something physical about them. Apollos in the scriptures is known as eloquent. Paul was known as bold and powerful. Peter was known as blunt and sometimes having the ability to put his foot in his mouth, right? Jesus was perfect. Every one of them had some physical characteristic that the people were saying, well, I I like this guy better. He's a better preacher. I, I like this singer better. They're a better singer. And so therefore, this and this and this is going to happen based upon these physical things. Remember this, nothing about the leaders in this context was sinful. Paul, Peter, Peter, Apollos, and Jesus all were just simply living out their God-given call to the best of their abilities and within their God-given character. There's nothing in the text to say that any of those men were wrong. The problem wasn't with the men, the problem was with the attitude towards the men. You'll notice this, that Paul never rebukes Peter, Paul, or Apollos, and obviously not Jesus, because they weren't the problem. The problem was people connecting to them. And we see this in our world today. We see it big time in our world today. What's wrong is that there's strife over selfish desires and ambitions He's a better preacher. They have better children's programs. Their ministry is more successful. I like their music program better. They're more organized than they are. They have a bigger ministry than these people do. Listen to me. All of that stuff is what? It's all physical. It's all physical. You will not find Christ in any of that. You will not find Christ being exalted. If you're going and looking for a church that has all of the fleshly things right, you're looking for the wrong things. It is Christ. Christ is to be elevated in the church. Christ is to be magnified in the church. And the apostle and and, and John the Baptist says it this way. If Christ is going to be exalted, then mankind must be unexalted, for lack of a better word. I must decrease so that Christ can increase. If you have a church where there is simplicity there and and love and grace and truth, and and maybe it's not not this exalted, well-structured machine, but Jesus is on the throne there. You better thank God that you have that church and serve him there. A divided church is a selfish church. It's a self-centered church, a self-righteous church, and a self-sufficient church. A divided church is rarely about Jesus, but most often it's about self. That's the conflict in Corinth. It became about us. It became about us. It became about who's preaching this Sunday, who's leading music this Sunday. I'll share with you guys when I... When I first came here, I met with the elders. It was probably a, a month or so after I got here. And I, and I, I noticed that because we had, I think at that time, we had three different guys preaching on Sundays and three different worship teams that would worship, lead worship. And the comment was made to me, you know, on some Sundays, a certain group won't come because they don't really care for this preacher. And another Sunday, a certain group won't come because they don't really like this worship leader. And, and I was like, and I'm, you know, you're, when you're the new guy on the block, you're just like, oh, I'll be able to fix that stuff. And it's like, 
No, you won't. And that's not right. I mean, we're here to worship Jesus. If we put somebody behind this pulpit that stuttered until they couldn't stutter anymore, and they proclaimed the name of Jesus and lifted him up highly, we should sit there with hunger in our eyes, taking in everything that they have to offer. Because it's not about them. It's about Jesus. I tell you, some of the greatest preachers of all time that I've known, I knew a guy that had a major stuttering issue, but when he stepped into that pulpit, he was a messenger of God. You know why? Because he decreased so that Christ might increase. The call, the Apostle Paul calls them to unity. He calls them to unity. I'm going to work through these fairly quickly because I want to get to the end. He calls them to a partnership. The appeal in verse number uh, 10 is simply, I appeal to you. It's a call to partnership. The Apostle Paul is exemplifying what he's calling to, to them to. The Greek word is parakaleo, which means to partner together, to call alongside of. So what the Apostle Paul is doing is, is he's, he's exemplifying what he's requesting. He's exemplifying, he's like, let's, let's do this together. That's what he's asking them to do, is to do things together, to do things right. It's a call to unity, to not be divided anymore, to no longer have this schism, to be selfless and to be submitted and to be humble and to work together for the glory of God. This word is so important. It means literally, if you were to ever see in the text of scripture, the idea of a family, like a genealogy, it would be like Rachel beget Joseph and his brothers. And the emphasis is that his brothers experienced the exact same thing. They all went through the same thing. That's what this terminology uses here is used here. It's describing the fact that we all speak the same thing. We all think the same way. We all judge the same. We all have the same discernment. You say, Pastor John, that's impossible. It is impossible if you don't have the same basis. But I'll tell you, we're going to talk about this next week in chapter number two. It's not impossible if you build on the same foundation. You see, if, you, if we're all in here thinking worldly, we have like probably 60 people in here this morning. If you're all worldly thinkers, there's 60 different opinions in here right now. Am I right or wrong? If you all have the same basis, one mind, one judgment, one way of thinking, one central foundation. Do you know how many, you know how many ideas and concepts still be in here? One. Yeah, you're right. It is impossible without Jesus. But all things are possible with Jesus. It's agreement in speech, agreement in feeling, agreement in purpose. Why we feel what we feel and what we feel. We are to be in agreement with that. The call to unity is a call to maturity. Matter, matter of fact, one time in this context, it uses this Greek word to describe perfection or a mending or completeness, a fitting together, like a puzzle being put together. The church is to be a complete puzzle that is not a puzzle of us. It's a puzzle of Christ. 
It's a call to maturity. Matter of fact, if you will take some time in your own to read through the different epistles of the New Testament, do you know what is central to almost every one of them? Almost every one of them calls maturity and unity the same thing. Almost every one of them. The cause. The cause is mentioned in verse number 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our cause is Christ. It's not just Christ, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't use those three descriptive terms to, to, uh, on accident. He's describing three things about Christ that makes unity important. Number one is that Christ is sovereign. He is Lord. If Christ is Lord, listen for a moment. If Christ is Lord and he says to you to be unified, what do you do? What do you do? If Christ is not Lord and he says to be unified, what do you do? You be divided. The lordship of Christ is central to whether or not we will be a church that's unified. The lordship of Christ was central to whether or not the Corinthians would say, yes, we surrender to the lordship of Christ. The lordship of Christ is central to whether or not we're going to be a complaining and murmuring church or whether we're going to be an encouraging and uplifting church. Why? Because that's what he commands of us. If he is Lord, we have no problem with it. The issue is, for many of us, is Christ has yet to make it to the position of lordship. And may I suggest to you that that's a problem? The Bible says in Romans 10, verse 9, that if you, do, that if you confess that Jesus is, is Lord, you will be saved. If Jesus isn't Lord... There's a problem with salvation there. The lordship of, of Christ is fundamental to the unity of the church. Not only is the lordship of Christ, but the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is simply the earthly name of Jesus Christ. It describes his humanity. Jesus is the perfect example of unity. He remained as a human perfectly unified with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He worked and walked in harmony with them. And then Christ is his Messiahship. He, it means he is the anointed one. He is the Savior. Jesus Christ has saved, came to save us from our sins, right? Matthew 1, Jesus Christ came to save us from our sins. You shall have a son, and his, and his name will be called Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins, right? He came to save us from our sins. Division in the church is a sin, right? So his Messiahship says, don't be divided. You see, literally the, the cause of our unity in the church, number one, is on the basis of who Christ is, but it's also in the power of who Christ is. He's the, he's the cause of it, meaning he's why we pursue it, but he's also the strength by which we pursue it. He's the example by which we pursue it, and his lordship is what causes us to pursue it. Conclusion. What most churches in the fog of division often overlook is how they reflect on Christ and the gospel. What most churches overlook who are in the fog of division, and listen to me, division is a fog. If you're divided right now from your wife or from your husband, if you're having conflict with them, there's a fog there. The same fog happens in the church. 
where you cannot think rightly of anything because you're living in a fog. What people do not, when they're in that fog, what people often don't, you know, when you're in a fog, what can you only see normally? You know, they've said, the fog is so strong that I can't even see the, see the back of my hand, right? Meaning that if I put my hand in front of my face, I can't even see that. When you're in a fog, often all you see is you. And life becomes about you, which causes the division to be even greater. And what people often overlook in the midst of the fog is the fact that they are reflecting on Christ and his gospel. And this is why division in the church is so serious. Listen to me this morning. If you've been in a church for very long, most of you have probably been in church a lot of your life. If you've been in a church very long, either you or your children have been through, or a friend of yours has been through a division in the church and now there's something about the church that they don't like. Now there's something about the Christ of the church that they don't understand. Is it true? I mean, can I get an amen on that? Amen. I've seen it with lots of parents. They go through a division, their kids are just small. They go through a fight in the church, and then their kids grow up thinking, well, I don't really know about that whole grace thing. I don't really know about that whole forgiveness thing. Does that... You know, it didn't solve our church problems. It's supposed to be big enough to get me into heaven. Right? And then you know what? A kid has like actual sense in his head. He's like, if that, if that forgiveness that Jesus Christ displayed on the cross can't get our church to reunite, then it must not be big enough to get me into heaven's gates. And that's why I don't want to close with this. The conclusion is these simple things that the Apostle Paul brings out about the church. He says, he says three things. He says, number one, is Christ divided? And just let that settle in for a moment. Here's the divided church. And the Apostle Paul says to him, you know what you're showing to the world around you? You're showing that Christ is divided. And what he means is simply this, Christ is insufficient. Christ is not enough. Listen to me. A church where Christ is enough, where Christ is central, where Christ is everything, is there division? Is there? Where does division come from? It's when I become everything. It's when you become important and significant. That's when there's division. This is why he says, church, you're divided. You are stating to the world around you that Christ is divided. Christ is not sufficient. And that's why he says this, did, did, uh, uh, he says, was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And then Paul goes through a little litany of just demeaning himself, saying, listen, I am nothing. I am nothing. This is not about Paul, this is about Jesus. And when we get to the point where we're starting to choose preachers that we like and teachers that we like and musicians that we like and going to church when things are going and we like the Sunday school here and we're going to churches and we're doing things based upon these things, here's what you're saying to the world around you. Christ is not enough. God help us if we make a proclamation to the world around us that Jesus Christ is not enough. And I'm not talking about with your words, folks. Now does division in the church make more sense? 
You wonder why Satan wants it so badly. It's because it says as loud as you can scream, Jesus doesn't matter. He says in chapter number three, I planted, Apollos watered, but God's the one that gave the increase. And he says this, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. How many like to hear that? Why? Because Christ is everything. Is Christ divided? The answer is no. A church divided over the physical reflects on an insufficient Christ. Christ didn't need Paul. Christ didn't need Apollos. Christ didn't need Peter. If you're this morning in need of more than Christ, better programs, better preaching, better music, better organization, what you are saying is that Christ isn't enough. Not only that, the second question that he asks in this passage down at the end of verse number 17 is this. Is the cross lost its power? What a divided church says is the cross is no longer capable of doing what it claims to be able to do. The cross is a, the cross is a central piece. Some of you wear an emblem of the cross and it represents forgiveness on the basis of someone else dying in your place. It means that Jesus Christ died for my sins, and on the basis of Jesus Christ dying for my sins, I have been accepted by God, right? Fully accepted by God, like God not thinking anything evil of me at all. That's pretty big, right? Who has offended you more than you have offended Christ? If the cross is enough, to bring you into perfectly, a perfect harmony with a perfectly holy God, then why isn't it enough to bring us into perfect harmony with unholy people like us? You know what it says? It says the cross has no power when we're divided. The Bible tells us in Romans 5 and verse 8, but God shows his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross claims to, to unite sinners to a holy God based upon a substitution and an imputation of righteousness. But yet the cross is not able to unite us to each other. This is what he's telling them. This is what he's telling us. A divided church undermines the cross. If the cross can't unite sinners, how can we claim it will unite sinners to a holy God? I will tell you something this, this morning. The cross will unite you to God perfectly. And Lord, help us for not displaying that well. The cross will bring you into perfect harmony with, with God. The cross will take all of your sins and remove them. The cross will satisfy God's wrath towards all of your sins. And God, help us for not displaying that. Lastly, it's the grace of God. A divided church undermines the grace of God. And he says that to us at the end of this passage, verse 28 through 31. Not many wise according to the worldly standards, not many powerful, not many noble, but God chose what is foolish. And, and you can read down throughout there. The issue is this. God chooses the least likely to be chosen. 
in the church. You want the elevated? You want the excellent? You want the, the, the masters of things? You are undermining the very grace of God. Because the grace of God is not the pursuit of those things. The grace of God is the acceptance of whatever he brings our way. God provides grace to those who are unmerited, undeserved, and unearned. And the church can under, undermine God's grace by choosing based upon physical characteristics or accomplishments. I'm reminded of 1 Samuel 16, 7, God looks on the heart while man looks on the outward appearance. The ultimate goal of it all is that no flesh will ever glory in the presence of God. No one will ever stand in the presence of God and say, look, I was a great preacher, Lord. I was a great singer. I built this great ministry. We had a great Sunday school division. The Bible says that the purpose of God's grace and God's gospel and God's work amongst his people is so that when they stand before him, no one will be able to glory in what they have done. But everyone will be able to glory in Christ. The danger of a divided church is bigger than just a group of people not being able to get along. The Christ we love, the gospel we preach, the cross that we depend upon, the gospel we believe in, and the grace of God that we need every day of our lives are all undermined by a divided church. On the other hand, a united church says boldly, Jesus is enough. The cross is powerful enough to forgive my sins and to forgive those who have sinned against me. The gospel is saving to all who will believe, no matter what crimes or sins they have committed. And the grace of God is for the unworthy, the undeserved, and the unliked. We at Grace Bible Church must choose to be unified, humble, forgiving, gracious, submissive, in order that we might defend the very character and work of our God in Christ. The only other alternative is to be divided, to be murmuring and complaining, and ultimately to be undermining God's character and work. We don't want to be that, do we? We need to embrace what Paul teaches the Corinthian church about unity, about not being divided. And look for what he's going to call us to. I encourage you to come back next week. I'll pray in just a moment here. I encourage you to come back next week. We'll look at chapter number two. And the issue is just one-mindedness. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We have the mind of Christ now. And because we have the mind of Christ, that is the means by which we can be one. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your grace and your goodness. Thank you for this challenge, the, the fact that you have secured us, stabilized us, and guaranteed that we would reach the goal through and in Christ, and then, Lord God, to call us to walk like we believe it. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to be the people that you want us to be, to move in the direction that we claim to be our destination, that our process and our progress might match our proclamation. We love you. Thank you so much in Christ's name. Thank you so much for coming this morning. God bless you.